and welcome to Work Interrupted, a podcast looking at work life after COVID and asking what next. I'm Christina Patterson and I'm talking to people from a wide range of working backgrounds to find out how their own work is changing in the light of current challenges, what they think will happen to the work landscape and how we can make work work better for each other and for us. Today I'm really pleased to welcome Adam Hamdi, screenwriter and author of best-selling thrillers including Pendulum, which was selected for the BBC Radio 2 Book Club and described by James Patterson as one of the best thrillers of the year. His most recent novel, Black 13, is a top 20 bestseller. His new novel, Private Moscow, co-written with James Patterson, will be published next month. Adam has also worked as a strategy consultant in the medical and tech sectors. He talked about the research he's done on COVID, how he broke into Hollywood, and being so poor that he had to burn his own furniture. I'm really pleased to have you on the podcast. We, we've only met on Twitter, and that was through our shared horror of the government's handling of the pandemic quite early in lockdown. When did it become clear to you that this was going to be a horror show and that the government's handling was going to be a disaster? Uh, I became um, aware of what was facing us uh, by late January, to be honest, and um, mm. and then sort of started trying to raise the alarm uh, and was very active during February and early March. And uh, I used to work, before I became an author and a, a screenwriter, I used to work as a, a consultant to the medical industry. And um, uh, I got asked by a former cabinet minister to prepare a report for Matt Hancock, um, Secretary of State for Health, uh, on what I thought the risks were uh, of the pandemic and, and why I thought that the coronavirus was going to be very much unlike influenza. And um, that was sent to him on the 2nd of March. And I advocated a um, precautionary four-week lockdown to gear up a track and trace um, program and the closure of uh, ports and airports until that program was in place. And um, it was that 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 um, paper was widely circulated to, to a number of members of the scientific community. Um, Professor Sir David King, who obviously went on to found um, Independent Sage, said he thought it was um, an excellent piece of work, and um, you know that the recommendations were highly merited. Um, a number a number of other scientists. Um, commented that it would have resulted in a 50% fall in GDP for those four weeks and therefore um, could not be, uh, they, they couldn't support the recommendations because uh, this was what we were facing was no worse than the flu. Mm. I mean, I remember reading your your tweets and obviously I was thinking, I mean, I'm no scientist and I haven't worked as a strategy consultant clearly, but uh, I remember walking around in February, actually beginning sort of feeling quite sick and panic stricken because everybody seemed to think, everybody seemed to be ignoring it. And I remember going on Sky when there was an early prediction that half a million people would die. Um, and, you know, no, and, and nobody seemed to be batting an eyelid. And I actually burst into tears in the green room. In fact, I nearly cried on air. There was a story that was coming through. And I just couldn't understand why people were taking it so lightly. But, you know, I completely understand that members of the public, particularly when informed by a government who was also clearly determined to take it lightly, would think that. But what I don't understand is why the, so many of the scientists seemed to buy the line that it was influenza when it was so clear what, from what was coming out of Wuhan that it wasn't. I mean, what, what do you think about that? Uh, I mean, there's a lot of things to unpack there. I think there's a um if, if people haven't worked with scientists and haven't worked in academia um there's there's a a tendency to buy into the hollywood vision of scientists as being these sort of gung-ho heroes that will save the day mm. at the last minute actually academia is very conservative you are yes. through the period you know process of peer review you're sort of you're subjected to criticism um at every turn as part of your uh, progress um, through your academic career. And so it makes people very cautious. It takes a long time to build scientific consensus because it is an mm. evidence-based process. But, but mm. what it means is you don't get the rapid response that you need in public policy. I mean, 
obviously uh, you know we're here to talk about your work and your work is not the stuff you've been doing during uh, the pandemic which uh, I think you've done am I right in thinking you've done that entirely on a pro bono basis or pretty much entirely 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 um, wow so so how has that actually changed your real work during this time have you done less of your real work um, yeah so I mean I write uh, books and um, uh, you know I write for film and tv um, yeah, I mean, it's had an impact on my productivity, but luckily I've, I've kind of been able to fit it around um, my schedule. So it hasn't had too much of a uh, of a serious impact. Um, but I just felt that I couldn't stand by, you know, when when this all happened and I got asked to prepare this um, uh, paper, I made contact with a lot of my former colleagues and with, you know, people who I either knew or was aware of um, in the scientific community. And, you know, it became pretty obvious to me that there was this gap between policy and scientific understanding or scientific suspicion. Um, and actually what, what then happened was um, when it became apparent that the, um, you know, the UK government, the Johnson regime, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> Um, we're, uh, we're going to let, um, uh, the virus sort of run unchecked oh. with their initial herd immunity strategy. Mm. Um, you know, then I realized that the only way we were going to defeat this was to, uh, find an effective treatment or vaccine. And so I went on mm. a, you know, personally, uh, motivated, um, study of the available vaccines that were in development and looked for what I thought was going to be the best solution um, and found it in a small genetic medicine company in um, based in San Francisco and offered to get involved and help help them, um, you know, develop their uh, product and try and bring it to, to market. So, yes, it, it has impacted my work, but I felt that it's essential to do this because this is a, mm. a crisis that's confronting the whole world. Mm. And the the company Ligandel is one of the world's leading genetic medicine companies. Where are they? I know they're trying to create a vaccine designed around the genetic signature of the virus. Where are they in this? And are you sort of hopeful that they're making progress? Yeah, so um, very much so. Uh, what they've done is they've synthesized a, a protein sequence that um, inhibits the infection of the ACE2 receptor, which is famously the way into the cells that the virus uses to, um, to gain entry. And so um, this synthetic protein, which is called SARS block, um, has been shown to be 95% uh, or more effective in preventing infection in cells in the lab. So the next stage now is that the National Institutes of Health in America um, are going to conduct studies um, to validate that that initial set of experiments that um, Ligandel uh, conducted with the University of um, California, San Francisco, uh, mm. uh, and um, and then you know we'll be moving through um, the next stage of trials, which will be um, animal trials, and then hopefully before the end of the year, going into um, human trials. Right. And you mentioned in a tweet that your wife, Amy McLennan, who's also a thriller writer, has been writing about pandemics for 15 years. That's, you know, not it's, it's relatively unusual. Um, in what context has she been doing that? Um, she's written a number of reports for the insurance industry about pan pandemic, mm -hmm. pandemic preparedness. Um, I think she first started writing uh, on this subject after the SARS outbreak when Every, you know, within the industry for, for insurers, obviously, this is a huge issue. You can see the yeah. economic damage, the loss of life, you know, the, the health implications, um, social costs and everything. So, you know, one of the things that they were particularly worried about was what if a pandemic happened that wasn't contained um, and that didn't just, uh, you know, affect a few thousand people? What if we saw what mm. we're seeing now? So she's been writing, um, it, you know, industry focused reports on um you know pandemics for a long time so that was quite useful when well, we were mm. when we were looking at what was happening in wuhan we both kind of <laughs> we were both sort of looking at each other in horror and saying wow i think this is it well it sounds like you're kind of you're the real alternative stage in your household <laughs> 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 but um um 
I want to talk about your work as a writer, obviously, but first of all, um, you did a degree in law, didn't you? So, and you have a degree in philosophy. Did the degree in law come first? And did you, uh, was that because, as is usually the case, you wanted to be a lawyer? Yes, yeah. So I came from a very um, humble background. Um, we didn't have much money growing up. So, uh, I, I, you know, growing up in the time of LA Law and all these glamorous American shows mm. that, that, you know, demonstrated how much power and money lawyers had, it seemed like a really good career. So um, I um, found out what being a lawyer involved and um, did, a, did some work experience at a solicitor's office and, and then... Uh, went to Oxford to study law. Mm. And then you decided this absolutely isn't for me, or did you still think it was when you finished your degree? No, I didn't. I, I, I decided actually um, midway through my third year when I started to do commercial law um, that it wasn't for me. Uh, you know, mm. I, I know lots of you know, a lot of my friends who I was at university with have gone on to be lawyers and still are, and they're very successful. Um, and whenever mm. I ask them, would you recommend it as a career choice for your children? They always say no. Really? Yes. How interesting. Yeah. Really? Goodness. Yeah. And can I ask you about the name Hamdi? Is there anything Middle Eastern in there or not? Yes. Yeah. My father was Egyptian. Um, so. Ah, yeah. okay. Because um, I I just had a feeling of um, reading Black 13 and particularly about the um, is it Leila, is it, is it Leila, yeah, the uh, yeah. Syrian um, yeah. refugee? I, I've been to Syria and I have actually interviewed Syrian refugees in in a, the uh, Zatari refugee camp in Jordan. And there, I just thought there was something about your um, eye really for, the, I just had a feeling that, it, I don't know, obviously fiction is fiction, isn't it? <laughs> However, there was something about it that made me think, hang on, this doesn't just seem like research. So that's, interesting and and do you think um because a number of the other people I've interviewed for my podcast have had uh, sort of immigrant parents M my mother was Swedish and um and you are clearly a very very enterprising person you've done lots of different things extremely energetic ha does that come is there an element of that that comes from your immigrant background do you think I think so um yeah I think you know Whenever you're, you know, my dad came to this country and had nothing and started off working as a waiter and then was a taxi driver and a chauffeur and you kind of build yourself up from nothing. And so I was mm. used to seeing that as a child, nothing was handed to me and I knew that I had to sort of fight and struggle for whatever, um, uh, you know, I got. And so I think there is something that's ingrained if you're a, if you're in an immigrant you don't feel entitled to anything you don't expect anything and mm. actually I think what we're seeing with um you know to a certain extent with the government's response is a lack of that kind of thinking it's a lack of yeah. that ingenuity that innovation that inventiveness that that allows you to apply um creative ideas to a problem and yes. you know so yes it's very much a part of it and also I would say my grandmother um, was Syrian so a lot of the things that oh, you've written really? yeah so a lot of the things that um uh that you know you're reading about um Layla in the in the book are things that I've either experienced or things that my grandmother told me about so yeah how fascinating I really I just felt there was this real affinity with Syria I, I went to Syria twice and I completely fell in love with it and I even thought about going out to Damascus and learning Arabic because I loved it so much but to go back to your other point about really about entitlement. Um, I think the other problem with the government is that um, there are people in charge for whom not much has ever gone wrong. And I think unless things have gone very badly wrong in your life, um, it's hard for people to under imagine. I, I think, you know, the fact that Boris Johnson missed five COBRA meetings and so on, um, he, if he had seriously thought that this could happen, he wouldn't have done that. But he, you know, if you live that kind of untouched life untouched by bad luck then I suppose it is quite difficult to take these things seriously yeah I, I I completely agree and I think the yeah when you've seen what adversity can do to people you take you take any threat to health and and actually with with a pandemic you know if you study the 1918 um uh, Spanish flu pandemic um mm. the 
implications of not locking down are really, really clear. I mean, it's a well-studied area that if you lock down early mm. and you take action quickly, you see fewer deaths, much less ill health in the community and less economic harm. So it seemed really odd mm. to me that they would gamble everything, put everything at risk by not taking swift action. And I think you're absolutely right. If you haven't seen adversity, you don't take threats as seriously as you perhaps do if you've lived with poverty or illness or any of these things. Um, and, and I think it's a real shame that we didn't have, I mean, if you actually look at the cabinet, it's a very um, homogenous set of backgrounds. If you look at Chris yeah. Whitty and Sir Patrick Valance, it's the same kind of backgrounds. They all went to the exactly. same sort of schools and they all had the same mm. sort of um, you know, backgrounds. And I think that doesn't help. You need some people yeah. in there who are, who, who have really been up against it because it changes your mindset. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm obsessed, but well, anyway, I went good, <laughs> but I'm obsessed by all that. But when, so when you left, when did you do, do your degree in philosophy? I did it when I was working. I think I started it probably when I was about 20, I think it was about 27 or 28. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. So, um, it was, I, I'd really enjoyed the, um, moral and political philosophy, um, part of my law degree. And it was just something that I was interested in exploring more. And I thought I'd use the okay. structure of a degree to, um, to investigate it more. And I specialized in the philosophy of religion and the philosophy of science. And mm. I just, I, you know, I wanted a chance to look at how thinkers throughout history had approached different problems. So it was, it was really just something to do because I was, you know, I was interested in some of the big themes and questions. Did you, were you already in management consultancy? Because my understanding is that you do kind of 100-hour weeks and there's no time to do, you know, have supper, let alone do degrees in philosophy. When, when did you start the management consultancy? Um, I did that. Uh, I started that about a year after leaving um, university. So, yes, I was working. Mm. Uh, but, you know, you have time on planes or on trains to read books and you do right. get the odd, you know, time off. And it was something I was interested in. So rather than, you know, that, that particular period in my time in my life rather than reading fiction books I was just reading a lot of mm. philosophy and um so yeah I mean I just fitted it in around what I was doing wow that is uh, quite something and and how did and what kind of drew you into the management consulting um that's a really good question I don't know I kind of I got I I um Started off actually on the uh, graduate program at Lloyd's of London, the insurance market, and then ended up working with McKinsey's there and just really liked the um, analytical approach to business and, and problem solving. And, and so that's how mm. I kind of got introduced to it. I'd like to say that I was one of these people that, you know, had a grand plan and a direction, but I didn't. I, I just um, enjoyed the work that we'd done and, and then went and worked for a specialist um strategic consultancy after that and then ended up spending a number of years um working for you know in the medical industry before I that was at the point that I then left consulting and, and um, turned to writing well before that you became a dot-com entrepreneur <laughs> and wrote a regular column about it in the guardian and then sold that how did that happen I mean, was that kind of accidental? I mean, I agree with you that most things in most careers are accidental as it happens. I can't imagine what kind of a person sits down and has a five year plan, but apparently some people do. But how, how did the um, did you just have an idea and then and then go with it? The idea for the online payments, which was then quite a quite a, a big deal, wasn't it? It was. Yeah. So we, we um, that was actually as a result. I was really interested in the, the the whole area. It was obviously boom time and there was lots of exciting things happening around the technology. And um, the uh, my uh, my then boss, actually, uh, who, who ran the consulting firm I worked for, wanted to um, invest in a, uh, in a dot-com company. And so we just ended up having some conversations about ideas that I had and what we might do. And... Um, put together a team out, out of the consultancy and spun that out. And the, the consultancy mm. sort of incubated us um, until we were able to uh, secure um, venture finance. So again, it was a, uh, yeah, I'd like to say it was planned, but it was a, just another one of those career accidents. And, and were you already, were you already writing at that time? 
I've always written. I mean, always. Have yeah, you? Yeah, always written. Just did you always try to get published? No. I mean, did you try to? No, you always no. did you try to get published? No, I didn't. I didn't. I mean, I just wrote, you know, sort of little short stories and and plays and TV episodes of TV shows and just kept them in a drawer. Never ever tried to get published. Never. And and honestly, it was to do with my background. You know, never mm. ever did I think that anybody. It was just not even in my field of um, awareness that people could make a living writing. And so we didn't know any writers, didn't even know any people who knew any writers. Um, mm. It just wasn't, I, I thought that they were kind of um, demigods of some kind, you know, this idea that you could mm. sit in a room and create a, a story and a universe that would engage people and that you could make money from doing so was just completely alien. So I never, never tried to get anything published. Mm. Interesting. I didn't get into journalism until I was 39, even though I'd always wanted to write because I, I came from a background that was kind of public service and you weren't, it was regarded as a bit self-indulgent to do something creative and I just didn't think I could. Wow. But I'm fascinated by the psychology of who thinks they have the right to be a writer from an early age and who who doesn't. But you got there, you got there. And at what point did you think, okay, I'm going to show publishers now, I'm going to take this seriously as a, was that when you'd sold the business and thought, okay, I've got a bit of time and money now or what? Well, we, we, um, we sold the business and then I went back into consulting for a few years. Um, and that was actually, oh, yeah, right. that was because um, I got asked by a you know good friend who was a f former colleague to come and help um, start another consulting business and ended up working out in Holland for one of the biggest medical um, uh, equipment manufacturers in the world for a couple of years and mm. and, and um, uh, at that point um, uh, shortly you know before I was uh, went, went back into consulting my father passed away um, very suddenly and it kind of mm. it, it was just one of those moments where you reflect on what's important in life and what you want out of mm. life and all that sort of thing and and so I took a decision that I wanted to write, you know, something that I've enjoyed and been passionate about all my life and done privately. And I thought, well, I, I want to do this now full time forever. And if you're going to do that, because I'm, you know, not from a wealthy family or anything, and I, I need to earn money at it, I have to make a living at it, which means I have to get published. Um, and I actually started off screenwriting first and built, uh, you know, over the years, a reputation and a career in that. And then um, because screenwriting is so dependent on the um uh, you know kind of a team effort of putting together a project and and making it happen i wanted to do something that uh, gave me more of an element of control and actually put um stories in people's hands and so i'd always been afraid of writing a book because it always seemed to be much more daunting than doing a screenplay um but you know one day i just decided i'm going to confront that fear and do it and write a book um and that one failed to sell, uh, had some interest from publishers. And my second book um, was picked up by a very small press in London. And it was actually my third book, um, uh, Pendulum, which was um, picked up by uh, Headline and pu published, mm. you know, I think we're now up to sort of what six languages. So, Wow, um, fantastic. Yeah. And when did when did The Hunter come into all this? Your, your comic yeah, book series. So when I was um, working and trying to build a reputation as a, a screenwriter, um, somebody, a producer that I was talking to said, oh, you know, comics and graphic novels are a really good way to uh, to build IP. Because at the time, everybody was, you know, it was all about, um, uh, you know, building IP and having IP and all that sort of stuff. So I thought, oh, well, you know. I, uh, sorry, IP being, for those who don't know, oh, IP being intellectual, intellectual property. Intellectual property, yes. Yeah, it's all yeah. about having the underlying IP. Um, for some reason, people are less likely to get fired in Hollywood if they buy <laughs> buy underlying material. Um, oh. Yeah, so uh, so I'd grown up reading, you know, lots of comics and, you know, was a big fan of, um, uh, you know, uh, Frank Miller and Alan Moore and just, the, you know, sort of big, comic creators and so I thought oh I'll, I'll have a go and ended up creating um the hunter and it was always you know with a view to um getting it uh, adapted uh, for screen and actually it was really it was good I mean it did well as an independent comic uh and you know sold internationally and um, but it also was a door opener in in Hollywood and um, I ended up 
I mean, it was actually one of the big stepping stones in my career over there was, um, was, was creating that series. How interesting. I mean, I would have thought the incredibly difficult thing would be to start out as a screenwriter. Anyone who's seen any of these movies about screenwriting, um, it's kind of getting into it when you don't have the track record. What were your first steps? <laughs> so this is the accidental theory of how to make it in screenwriting. I yeah. I read a lot of the screenwriting books, um, Sid Field and, uh, you know, read... That, um, Robert McKee, yeah, Robert, Robert McKee, Ted, Ted Elliott, and um, uh, Terry Rossio uh, have a brilliant uh, website called Word Player, and I went through that. They they have mm. a tremendous amount of material on there about um, how to write a screenplay. And then I was searching for an idea, you know, what was going to be my first uh, masterpiece, and um, uh, I had the idea to write a comedy mockumentary based on Judge Reinhold's life. Um, Judge Reinhold, for those who don't know was a, uh, he's still an actor, very, very busy, quite successful, um, but he was really big in the 1980s and he starred in films like Beverly Hills Cop and oh, Ruthless yeah. People. And I thought it'd be really funny to do something where he's a failed actor and moved back in um, with his parents and down on his <laughs> luck. And, um, and so I wrote this and I did what you're not supposed to do, which is I just sent it to his agent completely blind. Um, and at the time we were living in the middle of nowhere in Shropshire. And um, mm. I just sent it to his agent completely blind. And two months later, I got a call. It was about nine o'clock at night, uh, picked it up. And it was it was his agent and said, you know, Judge loves the script. He'd love to do it. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> and, and I and I said, what what does that mean? What how what, what do I do now? And it, and, you know, you read these books, but no one really tells you what the business is like and, and, and how it all works. Mm. And uh, and she said, get yourself an agent, get a production company involved and let's make it. And so that's what I did. Oh. Yeah. How amazing. So that is a kind of Hollywood story in, of its own it, because you know people generally talk about knocking on endless doors for years and years and years and that is the kind of that's like the jk rowling you know kind of rescued from oblivion thing oh, almost not that I, mean, I, I i spent years in oblivion after that i mean that was <laughs> what, what that did was um it gave me i mean there is the saying that they kill you with hope in hollywood and that gave me the yes. hope that actually oh okay i can do this and people will take it seriously and I have, you know, enough talent for people to at least make a phone call. Um, so, you mm. know, then I got on a plane and I've done everything backwards and completely wrong. I got on a plane and um, uh, went out to Hollywood knowing one person there and just started going to screenings and meeting people. And, you know, they would read my stuff and then I, they would say, oh, you know, maybe it's not right for me, but you should go and talk to this person here. And just gradually building up relationships and moving up the sort of uh, the ladder of, of producers. And so, I mean, I did the, I did mm. the years of knocking on doors after that. But, mm. you know, <laughs> that, was, that was the encouragement for me that I wasn't completely uh, mad and that I might have some, some uh, ability to do this. They kill you with hope is such a, a, a brilliant a way of looking at, well, not looking at it, but of, of summing it up, because it's always struck me that the screenwriting world is just one of the absolute toughest in terms of uh, getting into it, making any money from it, and then things getting made. I, I have quite a few, I know quite a few writers who've had options on their books, and I don't think, I mean, the you know, 99% never, ever get made. So, so you must be kind of you you get used to realizing that almost none of your stuff will see the light of day how how do you adjust to that yeah i mean that is uh that is something that you have to get used to um uh, but obviously you know one of the reasons that i started writing books was to to try and get around that and actually to get mm. um my stories out there to people um and so i think it is useful if you are um a writer of any kind if you are a screenwriter you and you see this more and more actually a lot of screenwriters have now started writing um, novels I think because it, it you know you have so much more creative control and you're actually producing something that's gonna um gonna make a difference it's gonna be in people's hands it's gonna mm. entertain them or engage them or whatever 
Um, but yes, the, the I think you, you just have to be quite pragmatic. And, and after a while, I realized, oh, actually, this is quite normal for screenwriting. Um, you know, the, the setbacks and the changes of personnel at studios and the, the all sorts of things that can lead to something not getting made. But actually, what you realize as well is that something that you maybe put down five years ago, someone says, oh, you know, I'm looking for whatever it is, you know, a, a family action adventure movie and you say oh well actually i was working on this and maybe you should take a look at it so you hear stories all the time of films taking you know 15 20 years to come to fruition and some of it is just mm. you know it's it's just biding your time and, and waiting for that moment when all the stars align and, and come together it's interesting that you use the word pragmatic because i would say that most of the novelists and certainly poets I know I wouldn't I mean obviously everybody has to find a way to earn a living and but and increasingly that often isn't the writing but pragmatic is not generally the word that springs to mind you know people still get heartbroken when things are rejected I recently reviewed a memoir by the novelist Michelle Roberts and um, the trigger for it was the rejection of her latest novel by her publisher and she's written novels you know all her adult life um so I'm wondering if you kind of end up thinking of screenwriting as a job rather than your great art rather than art and that the art is in the actual book writing or don't you see that distinction um i don't i don't see that distinction and there's a really simple reason why um we have a finite amount of time on this planet and i think for many mm. people this pandemic has actually brought it into sharp relief that we're very mortal um and so yeah. i've always tried to be very rigorous about what I do and don't do as a screenwriter because the time that mm. I spend screenwriting is time that I could spend writing books and I'm very fortunate yes. now to be in a position where I can't write enough books you know I can I, I'm currently co-writing with James Patterson so I, I saw yeah, that so, amazing yeah so that's um that's a lot of fun so I you know I have to work on a book a year for that that and then I have my own series um you know of which Black 13 is the first one so that you know that the aim with that is to try and get a book out um every year um mm. so you know when i'm doing my my screenwriting i'm always looking at it with the perspective that this is taking time away from my book so i have to be really passionate about what i'm doing so for me it still very much is um an artistic endeavor and it's very much mm. um i have to be really believe in what i'm doing and at the moment the, the things that i'm working on um, as a, as a screenwriter, I'm I'm working on a, a feature which I it's a spec feature film that I wrote. Um, a spec for those who don't know is a speculative script that I wrote, and then that's been optioned um, by a production company. So we're just working on um, the rewrites of that. And then there's a TV show that I've created, which um, I'm working on with the producers of Marcella. Um, so these are you know I'd consider them to be as much uh, creative endeavors as any of the books that I write. Yes. Yes. What an amazing position to be in to have so many high level projects to to juggle. Have you always loved thrillers? Is that has that always been your kind of main love in terms of fiction? Do you know <laughs> it's interesting, yes. I mean I have. I've always loved I've always read really widely and um, you know, um, growing up it was just as likely to be, you know, reading Wuthering Heights as I was to be reading the stand. You know, it was mm. it's always been quite mm. quite and it, and it's it's bizarre. I've fallen into thrillers because that's where I had my first success. But I'm I'm now working on something which is um, which is in a different uh, genre. Um, so I'm working. I'm putting together the, the early stages of a book that's uh, uh, quite different to anything that I've written so far. Um, mm. Yeah. Are you, will you say a bit more about that, or um, not to? I, I'd say sort of it's more in a sort of David Mitchell esque. Um, you know, yeah, oh, really? sort of, I love yeah, so it's more in that sort of um, well, I'm a huge fan of his as well. Um, mm. And, uh, you know, so it's in that in that vein. And it's yeah, and so I think that's one of the things that it's it can be quite dangerous as an author if you get pigeonholed and if you become comfortable in a genre because, you're, you know, you have a certain success at it, um, then it can be quite easy to just stay with that for, for many, many years. And I, I want to 
yes branch out and try and do different things who knows whether it'll be successful but you know we'll carry on trying these accidental career moves and see if they play out yes and you you had both critical acclaim and sold extremely well not many writers get both which of those is most important to you um Ah, that's a good question. I think probably the selling. I'd rather sell more copies. Yeah. Mm. I mean, you know, I find Mm. there's a tremendous amount of snobbery within some uh, literary circles. And actually, it's just opinion. It's art. You know, somebody might like something and another person might hate it. It's, it's, but what happens is you have these systems of control and hierarchies that, you know, some people establish themselves as arbiters of taste. But actually, their taste may be more informed and they might have more of an understanding of the history of, um, you know, whatever literary traditions they're uh, familiar with. But ultimately, this all is just a question of of taste. And so I don't hold much truck with, um, uh, you know, perceptions of snobbery and what's good and what's not. If And actually, what I found is it, it, it acts as a barrier to... Um, literacy if you put up barriers and say this is what you should be reading and this is what you shouldn't be reading it it just discourages um people in general what do you think a thriller can do that um that other forms of fiction perhaps can't do so well uh i mean i think the first thing you know thriller is a is a it's a ticking clock it's a an adventure it's a journey that's pulling you along at, at some sort of um pace i think um you know, for me, it's about maybe reaching out to people who, um, you know, I think if you look at some somebody like James Patterson, you know, a lot of his readers will never read any other books in a year. Mm. They will they will pick up his books and that's it. Um, and so you're able to reach out to a much wider readership and engage with them yes. in a way that, you know, a, a more literary book might not. And um, and, and in doing so, you can, you know, I'd say this, you know, Private Moscow uh, book, which is coming out uh, on the 3rd of September, you know, it, it examines some quite interesting uh, themes. Um, and a lot of it takes place in Russia, um, modern Russia, and it examines some quite interesting themes about the you know, nature of power um, and how it uh, relates to the ordinary person and how somebody who's, you know, not particularly powerful in Russia is just as likely to be exploited and manipulated and downtrodden as somebody who's, um, you know, not powerful or wealthy in, in America. Yes, it, it, very interesting, because I was thinking the same about Black 13, that you bring in so many big themes, politics, ideology, globalism, the changing nature of power. And, um, you know, I kind of feel like I'm learning through it. Do, do you aim, well, it sounds as though you do aim to educate as well as entertain, but maybe, I mean, that's um, that's what... Uh, art has always people have always talked about art and entertainment but is it a conscious aim of yours to educate as well as entertain um i'm trying to open a window on what's going on in the world so black 13 is interesting because it came about directly after the brexit referendum or actually in the run-up to the brexit referendum and i became aware through talking to uh, people um in in politics and uh law enforcement and the intelligence community because i try and build relationships with lots of interesting people um, of a, a concerted effort to uh, manipulate uh, particularly US and UK politics by certain yeah. factions. And so I went on a, um, I went into a, a rabbit hole um, uh, looking at far right groups in the UK and the US and meeting with, um, you know, members of far right groups, um, founders of these groups, um, intelligence mm. operatives, police, um, former army intelligence people. I mean, I went, you know, a lot of research. And so a lot of Black 13 is inspired by um, real things, uh, real events, real people. Um, mm. You know, I met the, uh, I met a, um, a far-right white supremacist mass murderer in uh, one of Britain's most secure prisons. And... <laughs> Yeah. And he, he said to me, he said, um, he said, oh, you know, he said, uh, I've, I've recount, you know, I've recanted my beliefs. And I was like, oh, this is really good. And he said, yeah, he said, it's all too mainstream now. 
<laughs> he said, you know, all the stuff that we were saying in the 90s, in the 80s and 90s, he said, all it's all coming out of politicians' mouths now. And he said, it's all, <gasps> yeah, and he said, it's all big money. He said, it's all big business. He said, it's all being, being um, financed across Europe. It's all it's all big money now. He said. And I, was like, I just thought, God, this is like people who, who talked about the Sex Pistols or some punk band, you know, that, you know, I liked them when they yes. were cool, but not now it's all mainstream. Yes. It was all, <laughs> it was very depressing. Um, but he and how do you get? Sorry, carry on. Yeah, he sat there and he he told me that I didn't have the right to exist because I'm mixed race. You know, my mother's English, and I thought, oh. yeah, it was quite an interesting. Uh... So, so why did he agree to? Why did he agree to meet you? I, I was invited to go into the prison by the governor. I met the governor at a criminology conference, and uh, and oh. he just said, oh, I've got some. You know, you might be interested in coming in and talking to some of our. Um, uh, prisoners and generally speaking when you when you talk to people as research do you approach them I mean how do you approach them how do you does it happen accidentally or you know kind of apparently accidentally or what's the, what's the process uh, sometimes I want to go and talk to people um, and uh, you know seek them out other times it's accidental you get a referral from somebody so you know I, I um and you know sometimes you have to be clandestine and you're not you know telling them what you're doing or, or where you are but um you know so i mean you know uh, what you'll find is quite often people are quite happy to talk as long as you uh, assure them that it's for a work of fiction and you're not going to use their name and mm-hmm. um you know it, it, i've had people confess to all kinds of criminality for a, for a tv show that i was researching I was uh, looking into a particular type of conspiracy, a, a tax fraud conspiracy, and I had people confessing to all kinds of criminality um, because they 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 knew that a I'd been recommended to them by a friend, <laughs> um, and that I had assured them I was not going to be using their real name and it was for a work of fiction, and they like to boast about something that they've done that has evaded, you know, avoided um, mm-hmm. prosecution. So, and in the same way, actually, with these far right people, um, a lot of them are quite happy to talk because they see nothing wrong in their beliefs. They believe that everyone else mm-hmm. is wrong in not, um, you know, holding true to their, uh, you know, ethnic purity or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, they're quite happy to, to talk openly. It's not, a, it's not a secret. This is a real, you know, political objective for them. Mm. Mm. Wow. Um, but, I mean, just reading Black 13, which is absolutely gripping, I, I've i been kind of, you know, really struck by the layers and layers and layers of research. And if you're doing a book a year with James Patterson and one of your own books, as well as other stuff, how on earth do you find the time to do the research? Um, well, I mean, Black 13 was three years worth of research I started right. in it reads yeah. like it I mean you couldn't do you couldn't knock that yeah. off so I mean I'll often be percolating an idea for a few years and then start you know so it's kind of all happening um yeah it, it might be I'll be researching something for four years and then write the book um but it's not full time for four years it will be as and when I can mm. get to meet people and talk to people and do the research so it's it, you know it sounds like a lot but it's not if you spread it out over time and you know you kind of fit it in around so yeah, multitasking is basically the short answer you do a lot of things <laughs> you do a lot of things at once yes and and you you at least according to your bio do rock climbing you're a good marksman you sound like a bit of an action hero <laughs> yourself <laughs> are you living a kind of uh, you know fantasy, fantasy in your life. fiction yeah, tell yeah. me about Tell me about yeah. that. No, I mean, I, yeah, I got into climbing years ago. A friend of mine took me, uh, probably about 20, 20 odd years ago, um, and just took me climbing, and I loved it. And so I've been doing it ever since then. Um, and then the shooting, um, I got into uh, because I was researching a film script. I wanted to know if a shotgun could be modified to shoot a solid uh, bullet. Um, and yeah, uh-huh. it turns out it can, but I went to see a gunsmith. And he said, oh, you really, you know, have you ever shot? And I said, oh, you know, I did a bit of, um, you know, just target shooting when I was living in Egypt. But uh, and he said, oh, you really must go out. And he put me together with a, an instructor and, I, I, you know, just just liked it. Um, 
so yeah and it, uh, again one of these accidents so could you would you be pretty, in one of the situations that one of your characters find themselves <laughs> in would you would you have a would you stand a chance <laughs> no <laughs> no way no way that's that's why i write these uh, <laughs> these situations rather than live them yeah no 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 no, no i'm not not that good and what about what do you think? Uh, obviously, writers are much luckier than most at the moment in that, you know, we can sit at home in front of our computers and do our large, do lots of research by Google. But um, how is your research for forthcoming books going to be affected by the pandemic or how has it been affected? Um, yeah, I think much more has got to be done by phone, online, Zoom, um, all those sort of things. I, I think, you know, going forward... Mm. Um, well, I mean, you know, I just, yeah, I, was, I was talking to a friend of mine today, actually, who works in a, an investment bank and he's just looking at the hotel sector and international travel sector and just saying, you know, mm. I just, just don't see how this is going to come back online. So I think things like, um, you know, international research trips, it's all going to be so dependent on what the, um, transmission rates are like in that area how risky mm. it is to go through an airport in your local you know your home country and it, it, there's all mm. sorts now of layers of complications i've got to go down and do a book signing um not with any members of the public but just do, do a book signing for a retailer uh in just over a week's time and you know i've got to think about well how am i going to do this where am i going to you know what what how do I get down there? What well, you know, there's all sorts of layers mm. of now of complexity to, to mm. doing anything that exactly. was fairly mundane. Mm. Yeah, but we've just driven three days to get uh, each way to get to Italy um, in order to not get on a plane, wow. and I was terrified every time I went to a public loo. You know, sort of masked <laughs> up with sanitising everything and all of wow. that. It's just amazing how every single aspect of life is now fraught, actually. And the film industry, at least temporarily, must have been massively affected. I mean, you you know, how on earth already watching films and TV, you kind of wincing when people hug each other and thinking, don't do that, it's not <laughs> safe, never mind. You don't need some terrifying adventure. You just need two people in a room to for your heart to beat more, more, <laughs> more quickly. <laughs> how are presumably that's that well you're you're again you're on the writing side but um what's happening there what do you think will happen well there? i mean a lot of you know a lot of productions were shuttered i mean pretty much everything was shuttered around the world and mm. um things are starting to open up now very very rigorous infection controls i know um, people have been sh you know shooting for a couple of months now in scandinavia and norway um and very rigorous controls, um, masks, social distancing. Um, there's also the question of what do you show? So with this TV show that um, mm. I'm working on at the moment, we were, it, it, originally it was going to be a contemporary show. And we kind of, we, we spoke about, well, how do we plan for the fact that this TV show will probably come out maybe in a year's time, year and a half. And what, is the situation going to look like then? Because if we film everything exactly. for now, where you're all socially distanced and everyone's yeah. in masks and everything, it's going to look ridiculous if there's been a vaccine mm. and we've more or less gone back to normal or whatever it is. Um, mm. So we took the decision to actually set the show in 2016 in the run-up to the um, Trump Trump's mm. election and to make it a period piece. And that you know, yes. takes the whole question of reflecting contemporary reality away from um you know just takes it out of the equation which yes. not everyone can do and I, I you know sympathize with people who are trying to tackle this now because you and I've, I've actually had to deal with it in the follow-up to black 13 and i've uh, because that's um being published next april and i've taken a guess that mm. we're not going to be any better off than we are now and that the you know pandemic is still going to be an issue um, so I've taken a guess at what things look like. And I've just written an, an author's note at the back saying, you know, I'm really sorry if this is not how an accurate, <laughs> but just imagine me sitting here now trying to plan what, what the world's going to look like. I have no better idea than you know, yeah. anyone reading this. So you'll be absolutely furious if the Oxford vaccine has been given to every single person <laughs> in the world successfully. I won't be. I'll be so glad. I want I want our lives back to normal. I want this. Yeah, you know what? I'm course, so done with course. the pandemic, you know? <laughs> I know. You know? I know. I know. 
I know. I mean, I want on a, on a you know horribly serious note. Uh, we are about to face a terrible. Well, we already are in a terrible recession, but it hasn't really kicked in yet. Or at least, obviously, lots of people have lost their jobs, but nothing in comparison with what is likely to happen in the coming months and possibly years. You have done lots of different things in your life. It doesn't sound as though as an adult you've ever really struggled financially, but you obviously do know that money doesn't grow on trees from your background. I lost a job when I was I lost my job in a newspaper when I was 49 and it was devastating. Um, and that was in an industry knowing that you're not going to get another job really because um, you know, the industry was in decline and so on. What advice with your immigrant background and your kind of spotting opportunity um gaze what advice would you offer to people who do lose their jobs in industries that aren't currently sustainable so i mean actually i, I i'm i'm glad i give the impression of success because i went there was a period where we after i'd um got the the judge reinhold script had been optioned while i was building up my relationships and reputation as a writer we ran out of money so badly um, mm. and we have actually written about this in the bookseller and we ended up burning furniture and people think I'm exaggerating or wow. telling a joke wow. but we ran out of oil one winter couldn't afford to get the tank wow. refilled and so we just burnt some old chairs in the in the um, log burner and so I do know what it's like to be um, mm. properly poor uh, so I completely mm. sympathize with people who are going through difficult times um, I think the the key things I would say is there's a lot of um, shame around poverty. There's a lot of, um, yes. you know, a sense that you have somehow failed and actually that needs to change. Poverty is, is often mm -hmm. bad luck. Um, it's exactly. nothing to do with the choices you've made. You might have been foolish and reckless or you might have overspent or whatever, but so everyone does that. So, um, you know, mm -hmm. the first thing is don't feel ashamed of the fact that you've hit hard times and reach out a hand and ask for help. So, um, you know, Citizens mm. Advice Bureau, there are all sorts of local initiatives to help people, um, you know, reach out, find out what's going on locally and um, get help. Then the other thing I would suggest is um, as, as much as you are able to, and not everyone's able to do this, volunteer, do work, um, do internships, do, you know, because through relationships, you get opportunity. So most of my opportunities have mm. come because I've had an accidental conversation with someone or I was working on this mm. and they recommended me for that or, you know, get, so open out your um, opportunities and your horizons by by doing stuff. Don't just sort of sit in a room and it's very hard because with poverty can often come depression and, um, you know, yes. mental health problems and that sort of thing. But you have to try and resist those things and try and get out as much as possible um, and and, and don't be ashamed and don't be down. This is something that happens to everybody at some point in their lives. Well, not everybody. There are some mm. privileged people who don't experience this kind of suffering. But um, most people will have had down down points in their lives. Reach out. Don't be ashamed. Um, talk to friends and family and don't be afraid. Don't conceal it. One of the things that we did, which was a huge mistake, we concealed how bad things were from people. Um, and, and so rather than ask for help we were doing the opposite we were hiding from people we were making excuses to not go to see people or to not do things or and we actually isolated ourselves from our friends and that was a huge huge mm. mistake so um don't do that talk to people and don't feel ashamed about it this is going to be hard times for for lots of people and and actually in in mm. many ways this is the one good thing about this pandemic not that it has many good aspects but the one good thing is it's affecting all of us and so yes. we can take comfort in that. Our, our experience is going to be shared. Um, and so that means there's going to be more people that you can talk to, more people that you can um, call upon for advice and, and, and for, for help. Yes, thank you. I, I, I agree with all of that. Now, I know from Twitter and from what you've written about COVID that you're not exactly Pollyanna, um, and nor indeed am I, uh, but nor can anyone be when they have seen what has happened in the past few months. How hopeful are you that we'll find a way out of this that doesn't involve millions dying? And would you dare to attach any kind of time frame to that? Yeah, so I mean, I, I 
there are still people out there who are saying, oh, this isn't a problem. Let's just let it rip. You know, let's just, this is nothing worse than flu. You know, yeah. I mean, they're, they're all, I, mm. I encounter them regularly and have troll wrestling matches on Twitter. But, exactly. but anyway, you know, so I, I, I think there's a number of things. I actually drew out the bell curve of all the variables that we've got um, coming at us right now. And one is, the duration of protective immunity, we have no idea what that is. It, it, it may be a matter of months, it could be years. So that's got to be figured out. We don't know mm. how many people suffer from long COVID. So it could be 10%, mm. it could be 30%, it could be more, we don't know. Mm. Um, we don't know what this is going to look like in the winter. So most respiratory viruses attenuate in summer, they become weaker, they don't kill as many people, they don't hospitalize as many people. And I said this would happen back in April, um, that we would see it weaken in summer and we would become complacent because we would think, oh, we're becoming immune to it or it's 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 becoming yeah. less virulent. There's nothing for us to worry about. But actually, we see that pattern every year with flu, with, um, you know, all the other respiratory viruses. And we're just not applying <laughs> past experience to this thing. So mm -hmm. um, I, I think we're, you know, the WHO yesterday said two years. Um, I know that cheered me up so much. I can't tell you because I was kind of thinking it was the rest of our lives. Did it cheer it did you cheer up? Cheer me up. I, I I think two years is a realistic time frame for the start of a return to normality. I, I don't think it's a realistic mm. time frame for this to have finished. Um, but there are mm. so many, so many variables. Um, oh, I can't remember who it was, but today one of the members of Sage said this is going to be with us forever and circulating and you know, we're going to have to have regular vaccines, you know, once or twice a year. And so I, I mm. actually don't hold to that opinion. I think we're going to come up with a solution. I think, you know, it could be like Andal, it could be something else, something that is a new technology. And it could be what it could be. What, yeah, like Andal, it could be yeah, a, yeah. It's mm. a new technology that will um, neutralize the virus because I don't think mm. this is sustainable. What we're doing, the way we're living now, and it's all very well saying, oh, well, it's only killing, you know, 1% of people. But actually, it's the devastation that it's leaving in its wake. The 1% is bad enough. But, mm. you know, you've got people who mm. are suffering months and months of debilitating um, complications. Uh, yeah, you know, we, we just can't have that. You can't afford that as a society. No, no, no. And let alone let alone the depression and loneliness and and uh, fragmentation and lack of social interaction all of that isn't sustainable um well let's hope let's hope that two years is a, a kind of realistic route to something out of this and, and if you had one hope for something that would come out of this pandemic other than it going away what would that be i would hope for a more equitable distribution of wealth um because mm. what what we've seen, and I, it's funny, I was saying to um, my friend who's uh, an investment banker, I said, what, what this pandemic is going to show is that the supposedly strong economies of the world are in fact very weak. Um, mm. You look at China, they were able to take very, very decisive and crippling economic action to contain this virus. And America and Britain man managed a few yes, weeks. Terrible. We managed a few weeks. And... And we were, we've been brought to our knees economically mm. and people mm. within those um, countries don't have the savings. They don't have the resilience to handle a, um, a, a crisis like this. And it's just shown up mm. the inequality. And, you know, at the time when people are, you know, millions are being, you know, made unemployed, they're losing their homes. You've got people at the very top of the tree, people like Jeff Bezos, who are now $70 mm. billion dollars richer than they were when the pandemic started. I also, I think there's a very simple question that people need to ask, and it's not just a social question, but these individuals who have achieved all of this and who have all of this kind of wealth really should start asking themselves, when is enough enough? Well, particularly when all the happiness research shows that over about 50 or 60 grand, it, money doesn't make you any happier anyway. So it's... Um, it's very strange. I find it personally kind of unimaginable why people feel they need to be so rich. But um, but there we are. 
Well, look, it's so, I, I must let you go now, but it's really good to talk to you, Adam. Really fascinating. Thank you so much. And I hope um, one day the pandemic allows us to meet in real life. Oh, well, it's been lovely to talk to you too, Christina. And uh, I agree. I hope, I hope we can uh, get together and have a glass of wine or a beer or something and, and chat in a happier world. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you liked it, I'd be really grateful if you could share, rate and review it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcast. It really does help other people find it. Do follow me on Twitter where I'm at QueenChristina underscore and on Instagram where I'm at QueenChristinaWriter. If you want to find out how I dealt with my own big work interruption, you could check out my book, The Art of Not Falling Apart, which is recommended self-isolation reading in The Guardian and The Eye. Here's to not falling apart and doing work that works for all of us. And I hope you'll join me again next week.